she had water births herself and she said, you know, having a natural childbirth was the most powerful thing she did. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, you know, I just feel like there are things that I have been scared to do. And I think about what it took to have a natural childbirth and I realized I can do it. So it pushes me in life. And I remember because we were both pregnant with our second and I remember being so pissed off during that class, you know, saying, I can't believe somebody took that opportunity away from me. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Allison Hare, whose podcast is Little Left of Center and who also has a coaching program that ushers in new podcasts. Welcome, Allison. Hey, it's so good to talk to you, Ronit. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. So, Allison, you were a broadcasting major in your college life. Is that right? Yes. I was DJ of the year twice and senior oh. DJ of the year the final year. I've, I'm really resting on that laurel. <laughs> That's really funny. Wait, where were you the DJ of the year? So it's kind of funny because it is a college called Kane University and it's in New Jersey. Nobody's heard of it. They gave me a diploma. The radio station, I swear, was 10 watts. Like my my hair dryer was way more powerful than the radio station, but I just loved it and had, you know, somehow gotten awards. It wasn't, I wasn't the only person at the radio station, but it was nothing huge, but it, it was a passion and a spark that that's kind of carried me through my whole life. So that was affirming for you yes. and your voice. And yeah. So after college, after broadcasting and winning these awards and things, did you make a career out of that kind of field? It's funny because I started to pursue a career as a DJ. And then I realized, wait a minute, DJs don't make any money. And I ended up pivoting and uh, ended up going into marketing and then selling. So I used to sell for a radio station and a big media company and kind of took off from a from a sales perspective. So I've been in sales professionally for 20 years, but I love making money more, apparently more than I love a radio, a radio career. Right. <laughs> on air. But, but it sounds like now you're kind of sort of merging the world. It's right? full like, circle. Yes, for sure. Yeah, but it took a while to get there because you, you know, when we first spoke a little while ago and I, I basically met you, you had talked having a, a time in your life where you felt like you did not have a voice. Yes. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes. Thank you so much for, for having me on and for asking for my story. I think we as women keep our stories very close to us and feel like we don't necessarily want to burden people or, you know, we don't know that our, our stories are so powerful, but I think sharing them makes a huge impact and how we connect with each other and feeling like we're not alone. So thank you for the opportunity. I have to, you know, kind of put that up out front. But yeah, so a few years ago, I had uh, met my husband when I was 34. We got married when I was 37. And uh, we found out we were pregnant on our honeymoon. And I had my firstborn boy at 38 years old. And it's one of those things where... I loved being pregnant, and at the very end, I had too much amniotic fluid, 
And so the doctors kind of put, they were trying to be preventative of any, you know, any, anything bursting, right? Having it get too much. So they induced two weeks early. And what I didn't know is that if you are induced when you're pregnant, you're three times more likely to have a C-section. So that's just kind of a sidebar, but I was induced two weeks early and long story short, they kind of hit the panic button when after like five hours, I was in dilating more than I had and were really, really, really pushing for me to get a C-section. And I was crying, I was throwing up, I, it was not what I wanted. And I remember, you know, writing in my birth plan, you know, unless death is imminent, I don't want a C-section, you know, just, you know, be there with me. And this was a OBGYN that I'd been with for 12, 13, 14 years. And I'm, you know, like, it's easy when you think of the medical community and people you've been with, people you trust, you know, it is easy to just kind of relinquish any control or any power you might have and just trust the expert, trust the doctor. And what I realized is I did end up having a C-section, but I was pushed into it. What was your feeling about a C-section? I think there's a lot of, um, it's a very powerful term. It, it brings up a lot of feelings for people, especially women. And I was wondering, what was your association with a C-section that, that you were experiencing at that point? I've never been asked that question. And it's such a good, thought-provoking question. I had no interest in having like a natural childbirth. I wanted to have the epidural, which I did. You know, I didn't really want to feel the pain you know, just get the baby out and let me just have the traditional, you know, whatever is normal, let me just have that. And that's all I wanted. And so from a C-section, I don't know that I had a lot of information. I just wanted to have that, you know, normal birth. Yeah. A lot of women talk about how they had the plan and they wanted to do their plan. Yes. And they get kind of derailed. They feel derailed if they don't get to do their plan. Yeah. So here's the deal that in 1970, the C-section rate in the U.S. for moms were was 10%. And now in the, in the U.S., it is 31%. And I live in Atlanta. In Georgia, it's even higher. It's 33%. And in this particular hospital, all of this I learned later, in this particular hospital, the C-section rate is 50%. And, you know, I can't imagine that women's bodies change that much. And, you know, I felt, so what happened was I was pressured into a C-section and my baby was born two weeks early. He went, so they, as soon as he was born and I was still shaking, I was still throwing up. I had so much drugs in me from the epidurals and the Pitocin and everything else, you know, and they were doing the C-section. And they said, okay, here's your baby, give him a kiss. I didn't get to hold him. And he went away. And, you know, a while later, I don't even know how my, I was very disoriented. I didn't know where my mom was. I didn't know where my husband was. I didn't know where my baby was. I was just kind of in the back, like in some recovery room. And it was right around Christmas. And it turns out my baby went to the NICU. And that's where he remained for nine days through Christmas. He never latched because I didn't get to hold him for two days. He didn't latch. So I ended up exclusively breast pumping for nine and a half months so we can get it. And what I found, and I feel like I'm a little, I sound bitter. And it, it's not like I, 
I felt like when all of this was happening, and this is kind of in hindsight, I felt like my voice was taken away. I felt like my power was taken away, even though I was given options. So for instance, the doctor said, you know, they had checked it like 12 o'clock, they broke my water. Five o'clock, I was five centimeters dilated. By 8 p.m., I was still five centimeters dilated. And they said, okay, that's, that's an issue. And I was like, what's the deal? And they said, well, you know, you could get a C-section. We've got a room available for you. And I'm like, I don't want a C-section, you know? And they, you know, would say things like, well, you know, you could wait, but if you wait, you probably will have a different team of people because we switch at 10 o'clock, you know? And I'm like, okay, is my baby all right? You know, like, am I going to be okay? And then they said, you know, and I was like, yeah, but am I going to be okay? And they said, well, you could wait, you know, but we're not sure because it's around Christmas. People are trying to have their babies. We don't know if there's going to be a surgical room available later, but there's one available now. And then they said, well, do you, I was like, but what, what is the risk? I don't understand. Am I going to hurt my baby? And they said, well, you know, we broke your water and so you risk infection because the water is already broken. And I was like, okay, then, then we have to do it. And what I didn't realize is that the infection of uh, the risk of infection is like 72 hours later, not eight hours, you know? So it's like all the information they don't tell you. Um, and this, again, all I learned afterwards. So, so I was pressured into it. It, it was a you know, it was not the experience I wanted. Was your husband, where was he in this decision? He, I mean, what could he do? You know, he was there. We're, it's both our first children. We don't know. You know, we're trusting the doctor. So you just kind of trust the doctor and say, this isn't what we want, but we do want a healthy baby. And, you know, we sort of got a healthy baby. Well, what was you wrong know? with your son? He was Why just was undercooked. He, he was just <laughs> undercooked. That's all. He just was two weeks early. Is you know, boys, their lungs don't develop as fast enough, and so I started to feel something happened after that. That I started to become really obsessed with my body and with my pre-baby body and trying to get back to that. And again, I didn't realize it at the time, but I felt like, you know, I knew rationally that my body getting back into shape or being that, you know, perfect mom whose, you know, body just snaps right back. It's no big deal. You know, it's kind of got it under control. The mom that looks fabulous, that Instagram mom that, you know, looks like nothing ever happened. I was like desperate for that. And I don't know why, you know, like I'm a, you know, kind of a deep person in general. So having that kind of superficial kind of obsession take over, was something I wasn't, I, it almost felt like I, it was an out of body where I'm like, why do I even care about this stuff? How long after the birth of your son did that start to happen for you? Probably six weeks, you know, whenever they say you can kind of move around again. And did you realize right then and there that something was different or did it take you a while to realize your behavior was changing? It took me a while. And I think, you know, I got pregnant with my second and I did IVF with her. It was a much different process. So we, I mean, we really worked for her and I was approaching 40 at that time. So I kind of hit the panic button myself 
and we did IVF when we weren't, you know, we weren't able to to kind of get pregnant naturally. And uh, we got lucky that we were able to have that. But I had the same exact conditions with my daughter, you know, the same uh, too much amniotic fluid that I did with my son. And I had four doctors tell me I absolutely had to have a C-section for the second one for a couple of reasons. One is I already had one. Two is um, after after my first son, I had a myomectomy, which is a removal of a fibroid, a uterine fibroid. So there were additional incisions in my, you know, in my abdominal area. And I was 40. And so they're like, you and had the same conditions. They're like, you absolutely have to have a C-section. So I didn't feel right about it. I felt like I didn't want to have my power taken away again. And I found one doctor that looked at my medical records and he is looking at you know, the surgeries. And he's like, I'm looking at your records and your body can stand the trial of labor if you want. And I was like, well, does that mean I have to have a C-section? And he said, do you want one? And I was like, I don't get it. (laughs) He's like, he's like, you know, I don't, I know it sounds weird because you're probably used to a doctor just telling you what you have to do. And it's kind of black or white, but you know, in this practice, we believe in shared decision-making. And I'm like, what is that? And he said, you're given options, you know? And he's like, uh, you know, the bottom line is if you want an epidural, we'll give you an epidural. If you want a C-section, we will give you a family-centered cesarean. If you want, you know, to try naturally and you change your mind, we will honor that, you know? But he said, we're going to closely monitor you more than we would other mothers. And if at any point, the risk elevates where I say you need a C-section. If I say you need a C-section, you need one. Until then, the choice is yours. Wow. And so this was a new practice, but it was going to be at the same hospital, right? Different hospital. Ah. Different hospital. And so I just felt like, uh, so what ended up happening is I ended up having a completely med-free vaginal birth at 41 weeks gestation at 40 years old. And, you know, if I had stayed with any of the other doctors, they would have said I would have had to have a C-section at 36, 37 weeks. So, you know, when I started to kind of peel that back, I realized just, you know, even the ability to hold my daughter after she was born and just have that skin to skin contact, which I didn't have with my son and she could breastfeed and do all of these things that I was not able to have. And I remember I was, uh, when, when I was pregnant, I was with a girlfriend of mine and we were at spin class, we're at flywheel. We were both pregnant. We were both, you know, we had kids 11 days apart and she was talking. So I would talk to her often about, you know, kind of my journey of, is this the right practice? Do I go somewhere else? Is this guy who's telling me I've got a choice? Is he a quack? Is he legitimate? (laughs) You know, am I going to be safe? Is the baby going to be safe? She had water births herself. And she said, you know, having a natural childbirth was the most powerful thing she did. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, you know, I just feel like there are things that I have been scared to do. And I think about what it took to have a natural childbirth. And I realized I can do it. So it pushes me in life. And I remember because we were both pregnant with our second And I remember being so pissed off during that class 
you know, saying, I can't believe somebody took that opportunity away from me. You know, like, what if, what if I could? And I did. And so having, you know, I did so much homework and so much research, I realized that, that we as women and as healthcare patients, as Americans, as humans, we have a voice and that it's not always in the best interest of the patient to just blindly listen to your doctor, your healthcare provider. And it's hard to know, you know, it really is hard to know. Well, it's, it's a hard position to be in because we have to believe that they know more than we do. And in so many ways they do, They do, of but course. that might be the connection between losing your voice because you weren't able to assert yourself in any kind of way with any confidence during your first experience. Yes. I feel that tremendously. How do you feel about it now? The first experience and, and how you felt then, how do you see that experience now? I feel so passionate about people's power of their voice and even for myself to kind of get my voice back and build the strength back of, you know, I, all I want to do is just help others use their voice and help others be able to use their impact in a way that I remember after having my second daughter and when I was on maternity leave, I was climbing up walls. I wanted to start a business to do something else, you know, and I've, I've been working in, in professional sales for a long time. And, uh, you know, and it wasn't that I was unhappy with my job, but I felt this unbelievably overcoming power of, you know, what can I do? What can I do with this? You know, I don't know if it was power or energy or just renewed strength that I didn't have before. But just going through that experience of how can I help others? How can I, how can I help the others? How can I advocate for other people? You know, before you had your son and this experience of the hospital with the C-section, had you been invested in the process or did that take you by surprise? Which process? The process of like deciding, had you really felt strongly that you needed to control the situation of your birth or had you taken for granted that the birth would just go the way you wanted? Oh, I took it all for granted. You know, like I'm a, I have a healthy body and, you know, went to all the classes, you know, the, the standard, you know, I don't know, Lamaze or breathing classes or birthing classes, you know, and kind of did that. And, and I just kind of blindly thought, you know, and I remember seeing the, the documentary, The Business of Being Born. It's by Ricky Lake. And it was kind of showing all the stuff that I was talking about, about, you know, hospitals kind of putting mothers and babies on their schedule, not the mother's or the baby's best interest, but just keep it scheduled, reduce the, you know, uh, risk of malpractice by controlling as much as you can. And I remember thinking, oh, that's just negative. Uh, you know, like I, I didn't, I was kind of like my head in the clouds kind of thing. You know, hey, if something goes wrong, I'll just deal with it. And that's what I did. I don't know that if anybody had told me, I would have listened. Right. I just don't. So often it doesn't, it doesn't really seem like it's going to affect us, I guess, until it does. Yeah. And there was a statistic that they said in that, in that documentary where they said most cesarean babies are born before 10 p.m. at night. And that's because that's when shift changes. And my son was born at 8.48 p.m. And I remember thinking of just that one statistic when they were kind of pushing me into the C-section that I'm like, 
is it really true? Is this really happening? You know? You know, of course, we're worried about childbirth. It's a really big thing. And for most of us, it's the first time we've ever done it. I mean, we've never done it before. And it becomes so uh, loaded with our desires and what it means about us. And when you can't do what you want to do, what you envision, it really does disrupt. And I think for some people, it also leads to an interference with bonding. I mean, what you said about your baby not being able to latch and being in the NICU, when he was in the NICU, did you just come and visit him regularly? Because you had to go home, right? Yeah. So I was there because of the C-section for as long as I possibly could. So I think it was like five days. And he was there a total of nine days, but I didn't get to hold him for like two days. And I don't know why, like I didn't know to ask to hold him, but nobody said, here, hold your baby. And so I have this picture of me holding my baby with tears in my eyes and he had tubes and everything on him, you know, and it was just like, it still makes me so emotional just thinking about this perfect little life that, you know, just, uh, he, he's just my world, you know? I'm curious about the ways that you're thinking about your body in that first, after the pregnancy, the first pregnancy, and you felt like your voice was taken away, the way that it manifested in terms of your self-consciousness and your need to control your body, what were some of the the ways it manifested and how did your husband notice that something was kind of changing in you? Yeah, I think so. That's such an insightful question too. My husband is amazing and is incredibly supportive. And, you know, like I would just go out and, you know, buy these like showstopper clothes, you know, whatever would cover whatever up and make me look fabulous and bright and sunny and a woman who has it all. And generally I'm a competent person. So that's not like totally out of it. But, you know, I think I started to spiral over, you know, I'd go to, you know, take classes and then I would get a trainer. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this little pooch, you know, on my belly is not going away. I'm going to get a, you know, nutrition coach or nutritionist. So I'd have these series of like coaching programs or people that are helping me. And then it got to the point where I just had this crazy control thing where I started to, you know, plug in every food that I put in my mouth. I would weigh everything. I would food prep. I would do all of, all of this stuff where I started to feel like I was devolving. And I remember saying, okay, I need to go see a therapist. And you saw it, you felt it oh, yourself. Oh yeah, I felt it. It just kept, it felt like I was unraveling and, you know, and I was like, it really felt like I was unraveling. So as I was trying to get on, you know, some kind of program or group or something, you know, to kind of, what can I do to control this so I don't get fat? So I don't, you know, lose whatever it is. Cause I don't know how that, I don't know how, what will happen with that. And I think there are some, probably some deep seated issues there as well. About body or about about getting fat. Do you know what the source is of those? I do. uh, I have some people in my family that are not terribly skinny and it scares me for some reason. I don't know what it is, but I think from the control aspect, it got to a point where I went and saw a therapist and this therapist ended up, it it wasn't the right fit, whoever this person was, but it made me more crazy somehow. 
that I'm like, I need to unravel this. So I would just go see any expert, any help, any, anything, you know, to help me kind of get this under control, not get fat, you know, and not be so consumed with it, but I still don't want to get fat. So from what you're saying, fat meant something from an early time for you that you yes. just had an association that was on a, a deeper psychological level or maybe represented something to you beyond a body size. So somehow after the birth of your child, the first child, whatever happened, this, this unraveling inside of you focused on the body and the image of you rather than what was really going on. Yes, I think so. I think it was a loss of control that if I, if I appear that I have given up, then I've given up and I don't know how to climb out if I don't have control over every aspect. And during this time where you, did you feel like you were a partner to your husband and a mom to your son still in the way that you wanted to be? No. And, you know, I don't think it manifested in a way where I was getting my hand slapped for that. I think my husband is incredibly supportive and he would, you know, he would always say, I don't, I don't know. I don't see what you see. You know, I think you're beautiful. I love the curves. I love everything about you, you know, but I'm, I'm here, but I don't know. And even, I think even to this day, you know, I think there are, you know, I get concerned over my body image. So after, after my daughter, I ended up getting a mommy makeover. And again, I was not fat, but I got a tummy tuck and breast, not augmentation, but breast lift. And that was horribly botched. It was horribly botched. And so it was so botched where I had a necrosis where it's the skin death. I think they actually took out too much skin where when they closed it up, it lost the ability for air and blood flow and it died. So I literally had a hole in my belly and had to have like, it was awful and had to have a medical device, you know, that I would walk around with for like, uh, I don't know how many months or so, maybe it was a month, but it was a long time coming. And so since then I've had three surgeries to correct it and it's still messed up. It's still horribly scarred. So you had a t part of the mommy makeover was the tummy tuck and you're saying that the tissue has never recovered. Yeah. There's so much scar tissue that it's a bump. Like even the, the scar itself is, I mean, I could live with it, but the, there are bumps in my abdomen of, of where there were so many surgeries in this one particular area, you know, from the C-section to four surgeries there, plus, you know, the myomectomy. So there was a lot, you know, there, there's a lot of scar tissue and I've even gotten to the point where, you know, do I want to go back in and fix it? And for me now I'm like, I don't want to get in that obsession again. I have to just let it go and be okay with it. So that's an interesting connection because you felt with your first birth that you lost your voice and now you've exposed your, your body was exposed to surgery many times now, you know, like four times, right? For, yeah. for the makeover. Yep. So how does your voice fit in and your feeling about yourself now? I think that there are a lot of things that have happened since then. And one of them was I started to feel really passionate about how can I make an impact? And so you remember how I talked about when I was home on maternity leave and I was like, I have to do something, you know, time is ticking 
and I need to do something that is more meaningful than what I'm doing now. I have to make an impact. And so probably maybe it's two, two years ago, I, do, I signed up for a manifestation course, believe it or not. And it was like this 40-day online course that's with this woman named Jen Mazur. And it was like 40 days to kind of manifest your future. I started to kind of take an active role in what do I want my life to look like? What am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? What am I passionate about? So earlier this year, and I don't know when this is coming out, but earlier in 2019, I was like, you know what? I wanted to do that. I've been, I've started to go back to Toastmasters so I could figure out how do I do a TED talk? Let me get, you know, back into the the realm of public speaking. I do it for work on the regular, but I was just like, let me just do what makes me feel good. Do what I know I'm good at. I know I'm good at persuasive communication and great at public speaking. I'm great on a mic, or at least I feel really comfortable there. Let me just keep doing what makes me happy and figure out, you know, figure out the rest. So I took this podcasting fellowship. I had no idea what the topic would be. And again, it was another collaborative cohort where everyone was very generous with their time and we'd all collaborate on each other's ideas and figure out, well, how do we flesh it out? And so I came up with the idea of Little Left of Center, which is interviewing culture changers. So people whose work kind of breaks convention and changes how we live. And so I launched a podcast in May and Ronit, I feel like my entire body has awakened and I feel like the voice question that I have of how do I elevate other people's voices, you know, how do I share people's stories or allow, you know, people that are disrupting, you know, the status quo, people that are doing things a little bit differently, which is the expression little left of center, like people who just think differently. It's not a political podcast, despite its name. Uh, but it can be too, you know, yeah, it, was, sure. it was also had some, you know, origins of being frustrated by the political climate and feeling like voting once every two years was not enough, you know, was not enough of an impact that, you know, what if we had our voice and what if we are able to add context to situations that, you know, right now we're in a position where, you know, we are constantly flooded with information. And I don't know about you, but I know that I am scheduled from the moment I get up until the moment I go to sleep and with no time to process any of it. So it's very easy to take bite-sized information and make an, an almost like a fight or flight thing. You, you make a snap judgment or make a, you know, kind of a, have an assumption about something and you move on. But I think that there's a lot of nuance that goes around with some of these perspectives and some of these humanistic situations that we're finding ourselves in that we really should slow down or at least take a different look or look at a different angle in a way that we can actually empower ourselves to make a bigger impact. I totally agree with you. Yes. Thank you. Do you feel like you're better? You're feeling better than that you were? Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, I cling to a couple of things. So I took a a seminar when I was in my 20s, and it was a seminar on brain science. And the the concept of it was really amazing. And so the person who was teaching it was 
from Belgium. So she had this cool French accent. It was like, you know, Esther Perel kind of thing. Like you can't help but kind of be, you know, enraptured by her voice, but actually remember, you know, because of her accent, you know, so you remember how she says things, repeats things. And she, you know, was teaching that the brain is always repeating patterns. So it's repeating patterns of relationships and things that are familiar to you. So if you find yourself in different, you know, relationships, but the same problems, it's your brain is just kind of gravitating towards that because that's what it knows. That's what's familiar. And, you know, like, and, and for fight or flight that if you, you know, are in danger, your brain just takes over with it. You're not even present. You're not even present when it's just repeating the patterns that it knows. And the only time that you are present is when you're creating. And when I thought about, you know, through that time when I'd become a mother and just spend so much time, you know, like proudly watching every Real Housewives, every Watch What Happens Live, you know, and getting caught up in this stupid drama, you know, and realizing what am I contributing here? And it wasn't enough. And so, you know, my husband for the first, you know, five years of my my son's life, he's uh, about to turn seven, he would say, honey, you really need a hobby. <laughs> you really need a hobby, you know? And I'm like, I know, but what? You know, I felt like I had nothing to say. I felt like I had nothing to give. And meanwhile, all this stuff was going on with the plastic surgery, with the, you know, the food obsessions and with working out and all of this stuff was going on, you know, behind the scenes and really was kind of setting me up for, you know, how can I help others with what I've learned and how can I use my voice and how can I elevate other people to use their voice? And so, you know, I have the podcast Little Left of Center, but I also started, as you mentioned, a podcast program called Press Play Podcasts. And so people can sign up and it's like a, you know, few week program that's very guided that takes you step by step from concept to go live from a podcast perspective of how can I help, you know, like how can I maximize the impact that I have to help other people use their voice and get off the couch and create. And so that, that kind of how can I create versus consume and we consume all day long. We consume, like for me, my vice is chocolate and it's shopping. And my husband knows that, you know, I'm feeling bad at myself when he sees a ton of Amazon boxes at the door. And he's right, you know? And I, uh, you know, we consume so much. And if things hurt or feel uncomfortable as a society, we are no longer taught how to cope. We're taught how to take a pill, move on, you know, grab a drink grab a bottle of wine and forget it or just steamroll or numb it out. I totally agree with you. And I, I think that you get to know who you are more through the actions that you take. And I'm not surprised at all to hear that in creating your business and starting your podcast, you don't feel the way you were feeling prior to that. I don't know if you feel this way too, but being a parent and kind of your kids get to watch you grow up too. You know what I mean? As you figure it out. And I wonder, like, I feel the pressure of the legacy that I leave, that if my, you know, kids see me making a difference, that it'll be kind of baked into them as well, instead of being 
unhappy or not contributing or watching life go by, even though that's not consciously in the, you know, my, I have little kids, you have, your kids are a little bit older, but you know, I don't know if you feel that same pressure to, to do it now, you know, do it now while they can see it and see you. You know, I don't have the, the watchfulness of the kids in my mind, um, partially because right now they don't really care what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I really am in the category of, oh, mom. Oh, so, um, yes. you know, I do agree with you 100% about when you start to mobilize yourself or, or start to actively seek things that can make you feel better from within and things that fulfill you, then a lot of other things fall into place. I totally see that. I want you to share a little bit about where listeners can find you. And we'll also post that on the show notes and on my And Then Everything Changed podcast website. But where can people learn more about you? Well, I'm so thankful for that. So thank you. Yeah, so they can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Allison Hare, H-A-R-E, like the mm -hmm. rabbit. And at littleleftofcenter.co, Little Left of Center in any podcast platform, um, and if you happen to work for Salesforce, I'm on Salesforce Radio and uh, also streaming on Decatur FM. So I've got uh, a little bit of proliferation on distribution. And then uh, Instagram, I'm Allison underscore underscore hair, A-L-L-I-S-O-N underscore underscore H-A-R-E. But yeah, those are probably the best places to find me. Thank you so much for coming on and for making the time to talk with me. It's been really, really great. I appreciate you taking a few minutes and your interest in me as well. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.